Thank you, Ken, and uh, thanks to the good folks at Blue Ocean. Thank you, uh, Caroline, for sharing your story so winsomely, but it's also so sad, isn't it, that such stories are, are, are everywhere. Ken, thank you for your friendship, and uh, we are shoulder to shoulder in this struggle for true acceptance, and what I'm going to do today at uh, Blue Ocean's invitation is to, uh, what essentially I'm going to do is to offer a basic summary of the backstory and then the argument of uh, changing our mind. And it's that part of the talk, the first part of the talk will be similar to talks that I have given ever since the book came out in late 2014. And then I'm going to kind of tell you the rest of the story, what happened after 2014 and 2015 and how my thinking has evolved, uh, how my experience of church life has also evolved. So I'm going to pull this up. I'm not going to share screen, but I'm going to um, pull up my talk and I'm, I'm going to work through it. So thank you all for joining us from all around the world. And I, I, I hope and pray that, that this will be helpful. And I look forward to fielding uh, your questions a little bit later. Um, the book that I'm talking from is called Changing Our Mind. Um, the one with the uh, yellowy-orange cover is the third edition. And my subtitle today is My Journey as a Christian Ethicist Toward Full LGBTQ Acceptance. I always like to start by saying I am grateful for the privilege of being invited into the conversation that any particular community is having. Uh, so I, I, I'm I'm aware that there are multiple communities represented today. There's the Blue Ocean community in Michigan and uh, around the world now online. But there's also, I know, uh, church communities gathering all over the place. It's hard to, hard to picture, though. I, I did have a friend tell me that they were out in, uh, I think it was Portland, and, and this event was being advertised on a church sign in Portland. So if you are that Portland community, hello. It's good to be with you. I take seriously my responsibility as a Christian pastor and scholar. You know, the, the teaching in James, where James says, let not many of you become teachers, for you will be judged with greater strictness, I take quite literally. I certainly did not flippantly change my mind on LGBTQ acceptance, and, um, and I am fully a person who fully believes that at the end of my journey, I, I will meet Jesus and we will have a conversation about whether I was found faithful in my calling. I, I believe that I am following Jesus faithfully. Only Jesus will be the one to render that verdict. But what I say to you today, I genuinely and truly believe it is the product of serious study. And I have not had any reason, no compelling reason to reconsider my argument in changing our mind. If anything, I would go further today than I did in 2014. Let me give you a little bit of backstory. I began uh, as a newly minted PhD in Christian ethics in 1993, my teaching career began. Remember my first class had about 150 students. I was at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville. I was 31 years old and I offered my first ethics survey class. I, uh, what you do in ethics survey classes is you, you know, here's a day on war and here's a day on economics and here's a day on bioethics and here's a day on sex. 
I now I now recognize that I began my teaching career. You'll say that the conversation for the day on sexuality was not as well prepared as it should have been. And but but I think this is symptomatic. I adopted the position that was passed on to me by my tradition, by my most trusted mentors. Uh, I was not ready to to listen to the dissenting voices that that were already out there and that had actually been all around me at Union Seminary in New York where I did my PhD, but I wasn't ready. One reason I wasn't ready, of course, to listen to those voices was because if I had taken them seriously, uh, I would have not lasted a semester uh, as a professor at Southern Baptist Seminary. It was just not even conceivable that somebody would be um, accepting and affirming. And, And my identity as an evangelical at that point was real and it was important to me. And the idea of a traditionalist position on evangelicalism, I would describe it as constitutive of evangelicalism. In other words, it was definitive. It was non-negotiable. One thing to be aware of if you have found yourself hurt by churches or scholars, pastors or teachers, is that many in the evangelical world, or probably almost all, are so constrained in their thinking because they either know explicitly or implicitly that any deviation from the party line could cost them their jobs. Back in that time, the LGBTQ issue, so-called, was viewed only as a sexual ethics issue. The question of who was allowed to have sex with whom, the assumption was that this question was rather easily resolved by the most widely cited biblical passages. And for me, as for almost every straight person who taught about LGBTQ issues on that one day in class, or that one Sunday, um, my teaching, such as it was, was entirely uninformed by personal contact and conversation with LGBTQ people themselves. This is appalling to look back on, but it is also a very uh, much a common story for people uh, who started off where I did or who are there now. So let's say that's my story from 1993 to 2007, the first 14 years of my career. But beginning around 2007, some anomalies began to develop that, that were a threat, you might say, to the traditional view that I was teaching rather uh, blithely. One was that when I moved to Atlanta in 2007 to begin teaching uh, here at Mercer University, for the first time, I started meeting devout Christian, lesbian, gay, and bisexual people, trans uh, people, it was a little bit later, but as early as 2007, I was meeting uh, devoutly Christian, church-going, LGB people, you might say, in my new home church, And, and these were singles, couples, families. At that church, First Baptist Church of Decatur, I was I learned a lot about um, Christian uh, LGBTQ people, their their diversity, their faith, but also their their sorrows, uh, their suffering, their how much rejection they had experienced um, almost always along the way, and how hard and brave it was to even venture a foot into church. But they were there at my church. They were in my Sunday school class. They were joining the church as couples, as families. And 
Also, I should say that beginning around that same time, the seminary students that I was teaching at the McAfee School of Theology of Mercer University included some LGBTQ folks. Um, but I was seeing pretty early that even though they were welcome, this is in the cooperative Baptist fellowship world, kind of the moderate Baptist subculture, even though they were welcome to study and pay tuition and uh, get degrees from my school, they were still at that time largely blocked from ordination and from uh, being called into ministry positions. Began to get more personal when my youngest sister, uh, Kate, came out as a lesbian at the age of 38. When Mitchell Gold, who wrote uh, The Furniture Guy, who wrote a book called Crisis, called me out in that book uh, by name as a bystander to the suffering of LGBTQ people. Crisis is an interesting book. I recommend it. It's, I, I don't see it on a lot of reading lists anymore. It should be there. It was an early entry in the storytelling of growing up in religious, religiously conservative communities and being rejected uh, if one was LGBTQ+. Uh, but Mitchell Gold included me in his book and he asked for a meeting. He flew to Atlanta and we had dinner together and we talked all about it. I wasn't ready to change my mind, but that meeting mattered. Um, I began to get some correspondence, painful correspondence from gay former students of mine, both uh, at the college and seminary level that I had taught, saying things like, you were a great and loving and caring teacher, but I was a closeted um, gay or lesbian person in your class and your teaching hurt me. I was also obviously like everybody by 2008, 9, 10, aware of the background cultural changes greater and greater acceptance of LGBTQ people in society of uh, civil unions and, and gay marriages being accepted and uh, made into law in a number of states. And I was listening to that cultural conversation, but aware that there, is, there were two ways to interpret it. One was as an advance for justice. The other was as a evidence of cultural decline or decadence. And, um, and so I was mulling that over. Um, I read uh, Gabe Lyons and David Kinnaman's book, Unchristian, and one of the things that was in that book was the data that the first thing that people thought about when they heard the word Christian or church in their survey was being anti-gay. So being Christian was equated with being anti-gay, like the number one trademark of the identity. This was disastrous and is, and is still probably largely true. Finally, you know, I felt I was a fairly senior Christian ethicist. By 2013, I was over 50 years old. I had tenure. Um, I had security. I felt a sense of responsibility, a sense of divine calling, really, to tackle this issue in a serious way at last. I felt like there are a lot of people who could do this, who maybe should do this, but I think I can do it, maybe be taken seriously by my fellow evangelicals, and maybe still have a job at the end of the process. And so, for my 19th book, I felt like now was the time. Overall, I would say that encountering and coming to love LGBTQ Christians and some ex-Christians during that 2007 to 2014 period, um, encountering them in their diversity, dignity, humanity, devotion to Christ, and their suffering was decisive in opening my mind and heart to some new directions. So in um, 
beginning in 2013, I attempted uh, a draft. Um, there is an unpublished version of Changing Our Mind that has never seen the light of day. And I don't even know if Ken has seen this, but I basically made scriptural arguments for three simple claims that all people are equal in the gospel, a humble equality of all as sinners in need of forgiveness and in need of Christ's love, that all who accept the love of Christ and accept the gospel are and must be equal in the church. There can be no second-class Christians. And that, that it ought to be possible to teach and to uh, embrace together a shared covenantal ethic in which everybody is called to the same standard of covenantal monogamy, regardless of sexual orientation. Uh, all kinds of biblical texts were reviewed in that manuscript, which I never did publish. But beginning in the summer of 2014, I began writing weekly columns in my kind of home uh, blog place, the Baptist News Global. I still write for them. And so week by week, I began unpacking, you know, kind of putting thoughts on paper about, about how to think about this issue. And it ended up being about 20 essays. So the, by the fall of 2014, I had moved to a fully accepting position. And I want to, to tell you kind of how I got there. In the end, by the way, as, this, as these articles were developing in the fall and summer of 2014, they were getting a fair amount of attention and a publisher front edge reached out and said, we think you should publish this as a book and should do it soon. So in an extraordinary turn of events, I mean, I think my last post was like October 2nd or something. And that book was out by November. And that was when all hell broke loose uh, because changing our mind was out in the world. And then it went on from there. Let me tell you about um, some of the major claims in the order in which they are unpacked in Changing Our Mind. By the way, the book is called Changing Our Mind, singular, because my vain hope at the time was to appeal for the collective changing of the mind of the church, the church as a whole, not just individuals, but the church as a whole, especially the evangelical church. That's what I was uh, asking for. So here's, here's, you know, I, uh, maybe one reason the book works is it starts at the very, very beginning. It makes very modest claims at first. And so let me just step through it. First, I said the church as a whole has a serious problem with what I called in, you know, quotation marks, the LGBT issue. And I said the people who are affected, LGBTQ people themselves, are hurting. Attempting to categorize the landscape, I said there's essentially three groups on this issue. Traditionalists who take, you know, the old school view. Avoiders who try their very best to never, ever address this issue in any serious way. And the revisionists who are looking at or have already embraced a change of the traditional perspective. I said avoiders are having a really hard time avoiding because it's becoming increasingly impossible not to take a stand. I said that the main issue is this, quote, Christian understandings of sexuality are being reevaluated due to evidence offered in the lives of those who do not fit the historic heterosexual norm together with associated research and mental health findings. In other words, there's a traditional position that is not holding together very well. It's being challenged. 
And it, we need to think about it. Then I said, the human population all around the world reveals a gender and sexual orientation minority of about four to 5%. Regardless of centuries of cultural and legal discrimination, stigma and violence, this uh, minority exists. The primary evangelical approach of reparative therapy or the ex-gay movement, I said, has failed. By its own admission, it has failed. Sexual orientation change efforts are utterly rejected by mainstream mental health effort, uh, experts, though Christians, especially conservative Christians, continue to go back to them. I said, we must acknowledge that Christians routinely have participated, not just in polite rejection, but fierce anti-gay rhetoric, activism, and legislation, and worse, that the gay rights movement has won substantial gains in the U.S. So in light of that, some Christians who might once have done outright hate speech are now falling back to a merely theological or church-based resistance, but that this resistance, which is still there, continues to cause substantial negative consequences in terms of mental health, family, and spiritual well-being for LGBTQ people themselves and those who love them. I said, all decent Christian people need to hold the line for what I call mandatory minimums of decent treatment. Accepting the existence of LGBTQ people, including LGBTQ Christians, ending all slurs and demagoguery and, and bullying, ending any remaining criminalization, ending civil discrimination like employment and housing discrimination, ending all violence or threats of violence, ending the stigmatizing and treating with contempt of LGBTQ people, ending the blaming for cultural ills like, you know, 9-11 happens because of, you know, whatever. I said then that the churches today have six basic options when LGBTQ Christians show up. They can take an approach of, we don't ask any questions about that, come on in. Or secondly, the who are we to judge? We're all sinners here. Or third, we need to enter into dialogue for discernment. Or fourth, uh, we don't think this is not a sin, but we're going to be offering pastoral accommodation. Or fifth, we're going to try to some some exclusionary tactic once we discover somebody is uh, in a like an LGBTQ relationship or even self-accepting. Or sixth, finally, some brave churches may be ready to practice what I call normative reconsideration, to open the Bible again, to open their minds and hearts again, uh, or for the first time, and uh, reconsider this issue altogether. I said, if, if you're not willing to do that, but, uh, so I said, I use this image, if this is where you get off the bus, you're not, you're not open to the reconsideration, can you at least hit the mandatory minimums? Can you at least not fall below that? You know, in large parts of the world and in large numbers of churches and families, those mandatory minimums are still not met. And uh, any international look reveals that, but it happens here too. But even if we do get to people to meet mandatory minimums and they stop doing demagoguery and um, hate speech and criminalization and open discrimination, there's still work to be done. I think the work to be done includes normative reconsideration, opening the conversation. So that is where I went next in the book. 
normative reconsideration. Let's go back to the Bible where I said these things. First, following, I think it was Christian Smith, the scholar, we have to acknowledge that Bible-based Christianity always has revealed what he called pervasive interpretive pluralism, which means on every kind of issue, from salvation to speaking in tongues, to war, to gender roles, to eschatology or theology of what happens at the end, Christians have read the Bible and come up with different conclusions. Pervasive interpretive pluralism, which means that the church cannot avoid a fallible, difficult, but necessary moral discernment process in which we open the scriptures together, we bring to the scriptures our heads and our hearts, our the text and various interpretations, and we ask under the Lordship of Christ for direction as to what we should do and believe and think and practice now. But that there has to be more than just a reciting of the traditionalist position, which involves essentially, as you all know, taking what I call the big six passages, there's not a large number of passages, and connecting the dots in a kind of a hop, skip, and jump from the Sodom and Gomorrah story to the Leviticus uh, ban on male gay sex or whatever is happening there, which I know Ken talked about last time, to the vice lists in 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Timothy 1, where words that are difficult to translate have sometimes been translated uh, homosexuals, and I think uh, Kathy Baldock is going to take that up, to uh, just taking Jesus' teaching on divorce in Matthew 19 and Mark 10, where he quotes Genesis 1 and 2 as somehow settling uh, the LGBTQ conversation. Then, of course, there's the move to Romans 1 with the harsh language there about uh, same-sex activity, possibly uh, the only reference whatsoever to female same-sex activity. I um, mean, I went through all of those and, and talked about reading these passages in context, how different ways that can be interpreted. But I would, I would, I camped out longer. And I think my most specific or special contribution on the biblical work is Genesis 1 through 3 and the echoes of Genesis 1 through 3 uh, in the rest of the Bible and in Christian tradition. I have concluded that it's the, fundamentally, it's, for at least for a lot of people, it's the account of how God intended to or how God actually made the world that includes these, these uh, phrases that echo through, through the centuries. God made them male and female. The man shall, you know, leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. It, there's there's a, a moral vision of creation, the divine creation order, as having a clear gender binary and as having an unequivocal male-female pairing in sexuality for the purpose of procreation, by the way, that's part of the traditional teaching too, that maleness and femaleness is, is not just for marriage and sex, but it's for procreation. And it's that mental picture. This is how God set up the world. And anybody who does not conform to that is willfully disobeying or disregarding the creation order. I think it's this picture that is the hardest for people to shake. And so I spent a fair amount of time there talking about what we can draw from Genesis 1 through 3. 
the those texts, primitive poetry mainly, offer lovely accounts of the worth and status of the human being, of the relational dimension of human existence, of the joy that we find when we find that helper or partner suitable for us, very important, suitable for us. But that Genesis 1 through 3 is not a science textbook. It doesn't account for uh, a lot of things. You have the older conversation about a a young earth and a six day, 24 hours, you know, six 24 hour day creation. But, but the faith science question now extends to what about people who don't fit a gender binary? What about people who do not find, cannot find a suitable helper partner from the opposite sex? What is, what is to be made of them? So I said, I think this is a faith and science problem to some extent. Also, I suggest that if we look forward to redemption in Christ of people as they are, instead of looking back to a primeval narrative about a world that is gone by Genesis 3, that would help. And I think that that is, I mean, I could deal with the other passages, but, but my conclusion on the biblical work is that you don't have to connect the biblical dots in the way that the, the traditionalists did. And choosing not to do so is not heresy. It's just a different interpretation of the evidence that is there. I also argued that we can retain a rigorous covenantal sexual ethic in which the idea is that sexuality is significant, it's not to be treated casually, but that it needs to be disciplined through covenant, that that is still, I think, a sturdy and good ethic. The best legacy of, of the, the Bible's teaching on sexuality, but that it could it could and should be uh, interpreted as applying to everyone, not just to straight people. And that this should be possible if we accept what should be obvious, the existence of sexual orientation and gender diversity in the human family, ineradicable existence, and that people who, are, who have been othered for their gender identity and their sexual orientation need to stop being othered but need to be welcomed and included in the community on the same terms as everyone else. That is the fundamental claim there. But then I move on in the last quarter of the book for some broader reflections. And I say this, I say that we're in a moment of transformative encounters with people and I think through people with God that Transformative encounters, and for me especially, it was transformative encounters with LGBTQ plus people that led me to a dramatic paradigm shift in the reading of scripture, but that this is not new. And it's in the Bible itself. Uh, just a couple of examples. It happens in the Emmaus Road account in Luke chapter 24, when after the crucifixion, two heartbroken disciples are walking away from Jerusalem. And, and they're quite sure that they had been wrong. Jesus could not have been the Messiah. He was, because Messiahs don't get crucified. And then they encounter Jesus and their encounter with him utterly transforms their vision. And if you notice that passage, they, they then, he opens the scripture for them and shows them a different way of reading it in which there can be a crucified Messiah. Um, but they would not have been able to read the scripture in that way if they had not encountered the risen Christ. Similarly, I'm saying 
as we, you might say, encounter the crucified uh, LGBTQ people among us, and I don't think that's too strong a word, maybe we can have a paradigm shift and leap as well, and maybe we need to. In fact, we definitely need to. And then I also would go to Acts 10, really a lot in Acts, but especially in Acts 10, where at the beginning of that chapter, Peter is quite sure that he could never have a meal with a, with a um, Gentile. And by the end, you know, they're getting together and he's baptizing them because God has shown me not to call anyone unclean. Peter could not have gotten to that conclusion just by reading the Bible. It was when he encountered Cornelius and the gang that he met through them that the Bible could be read in a different way. And then I moved to church history, and, and this has been an important, it's, it's in the book, it's something I've been thinking a lot more since then, that really throughout Christian history, when the church has gotten the teaching wrong, like on slavery or on sexism or segregation or anti-Semitism, that the repudiation of, of bad teaching has never happened simply because somebody made a better argument from the Bible. It usually happens because somebody experiences the dignity, devotion, suffering, and storytelling of previously victimized groups, that is, groups previously victimized by the church and Christians, and says, oh, you know what? We need to reconsider this. And anti-Semitism is, is a really good example of this. And I, I added a chapter in the second and third edition of Changing Our Mind that's about that. My dissertation was about that, and I can talk authoritatively about the history of Christian anti-Semitism for 2,000 years, which wasn't really repudiated by most Christians until after the Holocaust. So much of moral discernment involves how we perceive moral reality and what analogies we draw. And so I talk about in a chapter called a dual narrative tour, that some see the accelerating movement toward full LGBTQ plus acceptance as evidence of cultural decline or sinful apostasy, I now see it as a, a spirit-led breakthrough in recognizing the universal sacred worth of all people and as a breakthrough in inclusivity in the church and in the reign of God. And that is my experience every time I worship with a truly inclusive community. It feels drenched by the Holy Spirit. I also go on to say towards the end of the book that my posture today, after changing my mind, I think has greater coherence with the broadest themes, the most important themes of Christian ethics, as I have presented those themes in other books like Righteous Gentiles of the Holocaust and Kingdom Ethics and the Sacredness of Human Life. And these themes include solidarity with the oppressed, human dignity, compassion for the suffering, love justice, the kingdom of God and its characteristics, the equal worth and sacred dignity of all. So at the end, I say I've simply made a core decision morally to stand in solidarity with the LGBTQ part of the human family, with a special tenderness for the LGBTQ Christians and ex-Christians of whom there are millions. And I am determined to stand against any form of exclusion. And I feel a deep sense of repentance that this was ever really an issue, that I had to change my mind to get there.
let me move toward concluding by telling you about what it's been like since then. After my book came out, I was inundated with correspondence from LGBTQ plus Christians and ex-Christians and their families. Letters, I mean, snail mail and, and every way that, you know, Facebook and every way that people communicate. And just, I mean, hundreds of letters that, that confirmed for me the, the way I was seeing moral reality was right. I, I was even more deeply aware of the ongoing harm inflicted on LGBTQ people in Christian settings. I, I developed deeper contact with LGBTQ movement leaders, both Christian and secular. Certainly anybody who is an advocate for uh, LGBTQ rights knows that the single greatest threat to LGBTQ well-being in America and a lot of other places is conservative Christianity. I also was impressed by the work of the Family Acceptance Project that does research on um, basically how to get families to accept their own children and what happens when they don't. I developed a more critical edge towards the history of Christian moral failure. Failures of inclusion are a large part of our story. And so my idea that there's kind of like resistance Christianity and dominator Christianity, and we must stand with resistance Christianity, also took me into uh, a more of a resistance posture. You know, and something I, I, I've been thinking about from the beginning of my career, that it's just not any old version of Christianity that we should embrace, but only versions that, that stand in solidarity with the oppressed. I'm aware that we need, more and more aware that we need not just better exegesis, but, but better broader ways of, of knowing. Uh, we need a more psychologically and historically informed theology of what it means to be human, of human relationality, personality, and sexuality. That this kind of connecting the dots through Bible passages is not enough. We need a theology and an ethic. And so... You might say this began uh, to move me towards a, a broader critique of the way that fundamentalists and evangelicals know things in the world or are taught to know things. You know, you, you open up your Bible, maybe you go to a concordance, look up homosexuality or something, and you get your six verses, and boom, that's everything you need to know. What an impoverished way of knowing and encountering reality. We need broader contact with deeper ways of knowing things and themes like human dignity and diversity, relationality, uh, a broader understanding of human sin, that it, it often looks like our resistance to embracing the other. A, a fresh look at Christ's ministry, which was so often about demonstrating God's love for all people into the teeth of the religious uh, tradition or versions of it that human beings, all human beings yearn for, for most at least, yearn for that suitable helper partner, and that when the church has taught people to cauterize their sexuality and relationality, it is intrinsically damaging. It needs to be ordered, but this cauterizing strategy is just disastrous. Uh, I teach about Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, every couple of years, and I began seeing themes in Bonhoeffer, like the individual's responsibility before God having an ethic focused on real persons in their concreteness, not ideal persons in abstractness. Um, entering into the shame, loneliness, and suffering of marginalized people like Jesus did. Uh, an ethic of solidarity, of repentance, of bearing the cross, of seeking reconciliation. 
a willingness to be misunderstood um, and to pay a price. One of my favorite quotes from Bonhoeffer, he wrote to fellow conspirators at Christmas 1942, and uh, I'll, I'll make, I or the Blue Ocean team will make all of these notes available, but Bonhoeffer said this, they were, he was in prison or, well, he was in a conspiracy and he was about to be in prison. He said this, there remains an experience of incomparable value. We have for once learned to see the great events of world history from below, from the perspective of the outcast, the suspects, the maltreated, the powerless, the oppressed, the reviled, in short, from the perspective of those who suffer. The important thing is neither that bitterness nor envy should have gnawed at the heart during this time, that we should have come to look with new eyes at matters great and small, sorrow and joy, strength and weakness, that our perception of generosity, humanity, justice, and mercy should have become clearer, freer, less corruptible. Now listen to this. We have to learn that personal suffering is a more effective key, a more rewarding principle for exploring the world and thought in action than is personal good fortune. Finally, last few years, yes, Ken was right. The experience of evangelical rejection has been a stinging one for me. But in the end, what it has done is to deepen my sense of solidarity with LGBTQ people and their parents sometimes and their allies. In other words, to stand in solidarity with those who have who have also had stinging rejection. I've joined the community of ex or post evangelicals, not just in experience, but in rethinking much about how I was taught to think. My book, After Evangelicalism, hopefully charts a way forward for some post evangelicals. I am very clear now that only in a post evangelical or non evangelical space does there appear to be full dignity and inclusion for LGBTQ people and many other marginalized ones. The issue is not only LGBTQ+. The broader critique of American white evangelicalism is a profound one these days. Issues of political diversity, race, gender, and so on. So quite unexpectedly, I discovered that God had led me on a journey in which my effort from within an elite role in the U.S. evangelical community, my effort to inform a better conversation had taken me right out of the evangelical community. First, I was kicked out. <laughs> Don't let the door hit you on the way out. But then I, I thought about it and I made my own argument as to why I and many others needed to leave. So I'm, I'm at peace with that, but I can say that it was a hard journey. But I like this post-evangelical space. I think we're in that space today, and I'm glad to be in that space with you. But mainly what I want to say to LGBTQ plus people is thank you for your patience. Thank you for hanging in there with people like me, for hanging in there sometimes with church as a whole, certainly for hanging in there with Jesus. And I'll stop there. Thank you.